There are some truths that we need to stand on. Truths that are wider and deeper than the trite platitudes that we here at the Everything Happens podcast love to debunk. These are the truths that help carry us through the most unthinkable of moments. Truths that we can find ourselves wrapped inside of, comforted by, rest against. This is Everything Happens, and I'm Kate Bowler. Today, I wanted to talk to someone about what true things we can say when the world seems to be absolutely coming undone. When we lose people we love, when the unexplainable happens, what can we say then? And who do we trust to do that kind of truth-telling? My guest today is Thomas Long. Reverend Dr. Long is the Bandy Professor Emeritus of Preaching at Candler Theological School at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And he got his PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary, began his ministry at a Presbyterian church near Atlanta, and has apparently not suffered from being that Presbyterian. This is some pretty peak Presbyterian content here. In 1996, (laughs) Dr. Long was named one of the 12 most effective preachers in the world, and he is the author of Accompany Them with Singing, The Christian Funeral, The Witness of Preaching, and co-author of The Good Funeral with a friend of the podcast, Thomas Lynch. Tom, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Here we are at last. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's my pleasure. I wanted to start by asking you a question about why, because we spend so much of our lives doing things and we don't always know why. Well, I guess most people, but people who say they are called to things have to know the why. So I wondered if we could start there. How did you know that you were called into ministry? Well, I was pre-med in college and was heading to be a physician. And there was in our little college town a minister on the campus church who was standing tall for uh, racial justice. This was in the 60s, and he was paying the price for it. Uh, This is in a South Carolina town. And uh, he was a profile in courage to me. And I thought, that's a life worth living. I began to interrogate uh, myself and felt uh, tugged into the the ministry. You say something. (laughs) You're such a beautiful writer, and everyone who sees your name on a book should buy it. (laughs) You say really funny things like, uh, why am I a Presbyterian minister? Because I was called, damn it. And that, is, that made me laugh so hard. You're like, we're not dazzled by starting salaries or green Honda Civics. It's not most of what we end up being um, conscripted into by something other than ourselves is not particularly glamorous, but it it seems like it goes right to the core of a of even just maybe a person we hoped to be. Yes, and there is a pain and confusion about it, but there's also deep satisfaction because I think God calls us to our telos, um, to the, the blossoming of who we were created to be. And that, that's deeply satisfying. I, when I decided to uh, go into the ministry, I went home to tell my parents, and my father took it calmly, but my mother <laughs> immediately burst into tears 
Um, and she wanted a doctor for a son, not a minister. And yeah. she was inconsolable for weeks. And finally, a very pious friend of hers wrote a note and said, basically, cut it out. And then she paraphrased scripture. She said, the Lord hath need of him, loose him and let him go. And my father said, wasn't that written about an ass? <laughs> That's exactly right. I forgot that. That's so funny. Yeah, someone needed that donkey. <laughs> That's right. We, we have a lot of people in this community who are called into very emotionally expensive professions. They're teachers and social workers and healthcare workers and just like soft-hearted um, servers of all kinds. And you wrote uh, something I thought they would love. You said, God, it seems, has everybody's number and is constantly making calls, summoning <laughs> us all beyond ourselves to some holy vocation. Clergy are simply the visible icons of what is secretly true of all mortals. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the irony is that when we're called to place of, places of sacrifice and tender service that you mentioned, we find there pools of great blessing, that we find ourselves receiving uh, the mercy that we, uh, we go to give. Oh, that's Beautiful. It's it's not just for the outfits then. Every pastor or priest friend I have is just most of their outfits make them look like enormous triangles. <laughs> and <laughs> just like a like yeah, we a gotta sad... work on the haberdashery here. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. There's such a deeply aspirational quality to the things that we love, um, like we're sort of nudged into becoming as we do it. And never does that seem more obvious to me when pastors or chaplains or are, are called to do and say impossible things. And that makes me think about funerals. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, yes, yeah. you baptize, you preach, you confirm, you marry, you pray, you hear confession, you yeah. visit people, you say nice things. Um, you use big benediction hands. All these things are powerful, <laughs> powerful works. But how is how is the work of a pastor during a funeral maybe like a different kind of a different kind of task? Yeah, there's a there's a great passage in the Gospel of John when Jesus says to his disciples, "Are, are you going to leave me like everybody else?" And uh, Peter says, "Where would we go? Uh, you have the words of life." And I, I think pastors find performing funerals, presiding at funerals, richly satisfying because they recognize that uh, people are responding to the word of life that they bring. The pastors are the last ones standing. The physicians have all fled. Uh, the lawyers haven't arrived yet, uh, <laughs> and there we are. And somebody has to say something that has power and promise and comfort uh, and meaning in this momentous uh, occasion, and that's what we get to do. Yeah. It's like not a time for thin gruel, you know? No. <laughs> like no, and that's one of the tragedies that has happened in the sort of downsizing of funerals that's happened in our culture is that 
Um, they become, pastors have sometimes assumed the role of MCs at some kind of a, uh, this is your life celebration, <laughs> and forfeit the opportunity to shake their fist in the face of death. Yes. Yeah, that's, oh my gosh, that reminds me of something that our wonderful mutual friend, Pastor Will Willeman said about, he was presiding over the funeral of a little boy. And he was like just about to face down the parents. And then he took a minute and by himself just cried out to God and said, don't you make me go out there and lie for you again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and this truth telling that we should be doing at funerals is especially important because there are two preachers at every funeral, uh, capital D, death comes to every funeral and loves to preach. And capital D, death sermon is the same every time. It's damn every one of you. I I win every time. Uh, You want the evidence? It's right there. I break all loving relationships. I destroy all community. Uh, You belong to me. And we have the duty and delight of standing there and saying, oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Um, I, I tell you a mystery. We got to say that and to forfeit that for, uh, you know, her favorite song was a uh, b- bunch of bunch of hunk of burning love by Elvis Presley. Let's. <laughs> it's, so, it's so true. I mean, I, we want so much to tell the story of our love. You know, look at mm-hmm. all I've lost. This was not loss in general. Like love that we love in no generalities. Like it's it's this person. It's the twinkle in their eye. It's their dumb preferences. It's their <laughs> shrill voice. It's their, you know. And yet, I just I love that you're saying that we also have to tell the truth about the God that loves them. And if that story isn't too loud, then maybe we have just played the <laughs> hunka hunka burning love song too loud. <laughs> Also, we tell the truth about the person who's who's died, and I don't mean simply mm-hmm. laundering dirty secrets, but um, uh, we see them through the prism of their baptism. So instead of she was a great Mets fan or loved Alabama Crimson Tide, uh, the important things are seen through what we said about her when when we baptized her and. Uh, how the grace of God has been refracted through this life, even if it's a difficult life. Each life is a gift from God, and we get to say that too. I always think about this because I'm often in ridiculous and terrible situations, and I I like a good list of the hard, true things I know how to say because mm-hmm. those are, like you, you wrote, like, if faith has no word for this, it has no word at all. Like, mm-hmm. That feeling like we are somehow poured into us are true hard things we can say. So what are some lovely true things we can say about absolutely everybody because they are precious in the eyes of God? Well, I, I, that's, a, that's a great question, and it falls right into an issue going on with contemporary funerals. Um, sometime in the 19th century, we changed our idea about what makes a person important. We, we, we used to think about uh, Elizabeth as being important because, well, she's uh, 
the spouse of George and the mother of Jacob and Jane, and she's a member of the Lutheran Church, and she works at the library, and she volunteers for the Red Cross. In other words, she she was valuable because of her glue in the community, uh, the way she her life was a part of the web of life that we all we all depend on. We've changed that to think about, well, that's not nearly as important as how she stands out, not how she fits in, but how she stands out. And so the celebrity idea, uh, the, the wealthiest, the most famous person is the most important. And not many of us are celebrities, so we say, well, you can be at your funeral. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Tom, I never thought about that. Yeah, That's... so we, we, we start celebrating the whims and eccentricities of Elizabeth rather than the virtues uh, of how her life made our lives richer, how her life shone with the grace of God. And if Elizabeth had Alzheimer's, or if Elizabeth died a painful death with cancer, or if she was a difficult personality, we can talk about that, not because it's, oh, I've got a secret I want to tell about Elizabeth, but it was those experiences that were part of what made her contribute to us in our own understanding of mercy and grace, and how if she depended on us, that brought out the best in us. the quality of a human life that uh, can be talked about at a at a funeral when seen through the eyes of faith is uh, many faceted. Mm. What about the precious moments version of that? Because you know, sentimentality can be the enemy of of good truth telling, and I can think of a lot of overly shellacked things that mm-hmm. people say at Christian mm-hmm. funerals, especially mm-hmm. maybe if someone died like terribly of an addiction that ripped their mm-hmm. family apart or like what if we can see no good no transcendent bits no like what if it's just what if it just feels like a tragedy i think it's rare to have a life about which n- no virtue or gift can be spotted at all but if there are such then the task i think of those who are speaking at the funeral, is to proclaim that not all of that life was visible to us, that what is visible to God yeah. is a richer and deeper life than we were able to see, Yeah, that we we saw only the rough edges and the hard sides. But this was a, this was a child created by God, loved by God, and given gifts by God, even when we couldn't see, when we were groping in the dark and couldn't see them. Yeah. My friend Rosa has this ministry with her church, and they they bury the unclaimed dead, that there's a local morgue and nobody picks up these bodies, and they bury them in a beautiful funeral, and they say things like that to them. And there is something about maybe what you were just saying about, like, preaching against the other preacher in the funeral— Mm-hmm. That they're preaching against big D mm-hmm. death when they say, this person whose life has so isolated them that nobody wanted them in this moment. In some synagogues, there is a group called the Hevra Kadisha, which is the Holy Society, and it's their responsibility to prepare the bodies of the Jewish dead. And they have a very beautiful ritual by which they do this. It, it involves the washing of the body, uh, the treating of the body with modesty as if it does not want to be embarrassed. And so they cover 
everything except the part that they're that they're washing. And as they do, they quote to the corpse the Song of Songs. You are beautiful. Your eyes glisten like diamonds. Uh, you are the beloved of Israel. And to they say that of, of, of everyone, hard lives and good lives, but this is who we, we are. It's like we treat it like a baby being born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Christian church inherited much of that. Uh, when we finally got our act together about Christian funerals, which is about the 5th century, the way it would go is that uh, the body would be washed while we sang uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and then dressed in a baptismal garment and carried um, during the day by the friends and members of the church with white baptismal garments and taken um, to the wherever the place of burial was, where there was a Lord's Supper. And they greeted each other with a kiss, including Elizabeth, uh, because she was a sister. And this was her last Lord's Supper Mm. in this life and her first taste of the Messianic banquet. And the table straddled a time zone. And it was clear to them that they were completing baptism because they washed Elizabeth when she was baptized and now they washed her again in death, and they clothed her in a baptismal garment when she was baptized. We clothed her again in a garment of white, baptismal uh, white, and we fed her at the table of God all of her Christian life, and we feed her once uh, more. And so the full symmetry, the completion of baptism was there. That, that's who she really is. She's really who we saw her to be in her baptism. Mm. That's a hard... An absolutely devastatingly beautiful story to tell. It is. And it sounds like we have to do some odd. <laughs> you write that it would be really strange if we just invented these traditions now. You're like, oh, hey, everyone, we've got this group. They love to get together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that, right. in a way, it's hard later to invent the heavy lifting required yeah. to tell a story yeah. that big. Yeah. You know, uh, when I wrote the book about the Christian funeral, accompanied them with singing, I wrote it because I couldn't find a good book to put on my syllabus for my worship class. And so I said, well, I'll just write it myself. <laughs> and it took me ten, over 10 years to write the book, uh, not because I was procrastinating, but because I changed my mind so dramatically that I ended up writing against the book that I started out writing. Uh, and the book that I started out to write was... You know that phrase, well, uh, funerals aren't for the dead, they're for, they're for the living. And so they're only there for com- the comfort of the living. Those are one of those half-truths that you talk about so beautifully in your book. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, actually, when you go all the way back, a funeral was our accompanying Elizabeth on the last mile of her journey to the messianic banquet, to the heaven, to the heavenly feast, and it it's action filled. Uh, it's a piece of drama in which we sing as we carry her, her, and we've traded that in for sitting quietly in a room and thinking about Elizabeth and life and and death, rather than actually journeying uh, 
with her. Funerals, when you look at them uh, anthropologically, are the most noisy and action-filled of human rituals. (laughs) That's so interesting because it demands participation when things are that. I do think that the worse things get, the busier we need to feel with it. Otherwise, we feel helpless and just nuts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's it's about Elizabeth. I mean, we're taking her to the to the banquet table. In fact, there's a Syriac prayer that developed early on in which um, the the prayers pray as they walk with the mm-hmm. corpse and say, hey, "God, we're bringing Elizabeth to you. Open up the heavenly choir. We've got a new voice for you. <laughs> Get ready to receive her. Don't let anything." Keep the door closed. We want Elizabeth to be with you. And we've traded that in for a ritual that is quiet, contemplative, and can no longer bear the weight of Elizabeth. We're the first people in the history of the world to ban the dead from their own funerals. Right. Right. Because we have someone dispose of them, and then we have these celebrations of life. Or That's right, yeah. And we can't take Elizabeth there because if Elizabeth is there, it's very clear there's been a death. It's yeah. very clear that um, a voice that was at our table the day before is stilled for us. And the death doesn't break the relationship, but it changes it dramatically. And you can't avoid that if Elizabeth is there. Yes. Yes. There's a lovely thing my... Uh... I married into Mennonites, and I am so grateful for it. But they, they're they're pretty good with this part because they mm-hmm. keep them close, mm-hmm. you know. Especially now that there's these big farmlands and places where small churches used to be, but there's they keep the graveyard up. Yeah, and then so you yeah. can you can be buried with your people next to a a field that someone's gonna mow, and. Mm-hmm. The great complaint. I was. I spent a long time worrying about dying, and so I tried to figure out where I wanted to be buried. And um, the great. <laughs> I thought people would humor me a lot because my situation was very sad, and mostly I got a lot of pushback of whether I was allowed to plant a tree because they're actually really hard to mow around. <laughs> and, <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> but what I loved about it was they weren't disappeared. You were. You were put down somewhere where people were going to find you. Yeah. You know, the reason th- those graveyards that you mentioned that used to be around churches, uh, they, they literally were around churches. Yeah. And that's because historically, Christians wanted to be buried near the table. Uh, we were going to the feast. And so, you, in fact, in some cathedrals, you'll find priests and so on buried under the altar and uh, the rest of us are are crowded around the church building because uh, we're there for the Lord's Supper, <laughs> the saint upon saint, row upon row. Uh, if you could squint and see them, they they would all be there. You know, uh, young ministers sometimes get angry because their uh, congregations won't come up to the front. There, there's a woman sitting on the back pew and two people in the balcony and a, yeah. three people over here. And, yeah. Why don't we come on down? And what yeah. what they aren't doing is squinting, because if they squinted, they would see next to that woman back there, her husband who died three years ago, who's worshiping with her still. And the little girl that the family lost is, is there. They're all there at the, at the table if we, knew how to, if we knew how to look. 
That's really beautiful. Uh, We do. We're like very stuck in this intense spirit body divide, aren't we? And you really don't like it when people say things like the body is just a shell. Right. Right. Tom Lynch is especially good on that. (laughs) You know, if you want to know who who I am, uh, look at what my body does. Look at the words that I speak. Look what I put my hands to. Look where my feet take me. Look at the relationships that I form in embodied ways with, with my wife and with others. And that's who I am. And so that's why the resurrection is the resurrection of the, of the body. It's not a magic trick. It's a, a validation of a lived embodied life. Um, this is who Tom is. And down in our DNA, we know that we want to care for the bodies of the dead. We want to walk with them all the way to the end. Yeah. You wrote that gorgeous thing. I was so, I was so caught on that about how our, our most ancient funerals that they find, like that archaeologists could find dry, dried flowers, as if the second we see someone laid down that we immediately think, I need... I need beauty. I need beauty to go with them. We never just leave people, but we right. we we send them somewhere. I love just what an ancient hope we have. I was um, going to give a lecture about Christian funerals at Valparaiso University, and I was riding a bus to the campus. And on the bus, there was a young father and his son, and they had evidently just gone to Walt Disney World because they had on their T-shirts and had Mickey Mouse ears. And the father was gregarious, and he he asked me where I was going. And I, I didn't want to tell a guy wearing Mickey Mouse ears that I'm going to go talk about death. Yeah, you're like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But he pressed and pressed and pressed, and finally I told him, I said, I'm going to talk about Christian funerals. And he said, uh, he got real quiet, and he said, I am the one who has the honor in my mosque in Wisconsin of washing the dead uh, of the congregation. And he said, I don't understand, Christians. You leave before it's over. I thought that was wise. We leave before it's over. We don't go all the way to the place of farewell. Yeah. Tom, I don't think I've ever gotten a chance to ask anyone this. So... Hmm. Here here we go. You know, you permit yourselves these kinds of questions when you're in college or something, and then you set them aside because they all feel embarrassing. Hmm. But when I was thinking about your work, I just kept wondering, like, why is it that we die at all? Isn't it kind of strange that we're created only to have us come apart? It seems a bit excessive, doesn't it? Yeah, and... um. I don't think there's a, a single uh, unified answer to that. Uh, there's a there's a biological reason why we die, but there's there's also a theo- there, I think there are theological reasons why we die, and there are good news and bad news. Yeah. Uh, the 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 bad news is that for reasons we do not understand, this world is uh, in the grip of the of the fallenness of things and we have we have old stories that try to explain how that happened but they're they're stories that are too deep to be, to be simple explanations but 
something came apart. The world is now not how it was intended to be. And the Christian gospel is God's reaching out with liberation to rescue a world that has, that has fallen and not to let the powers of death um, have the last word. But the powers of death are strong. Uh, they're very strong. The, the good news uh, of it is that, you know, quite unlike the aspirations of some modern medics to create the situation where we live forever. <laughs> Our super life is just around yeah. the corner. <laughs> right. Where we'll never die. Yeah, um, I've got a cleanse for that. Yeah, we have, a, we have uh, the fact that we are finite and we are mortal, and so we get to learn how to number our days. We get to try to make each day uh, full of uh, meaning and worship and love. It feels like kind of a terrible setup, though, that our story about God and each other teaches us how to love, like fundamentally teaches us how to love in a way that is unbearable. Like just, it, our love is so awful. I mean, the more we love, the, the worse it gets. And so on and so on. <laughs> it just feels like it's the, it's like we, it, we, we get like shown the marrow of the universe and then, and then we have to live without it. I just, it still feels impossible, doesn't it though? I, 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 th- I think I know what you mean. So yes, the, to, to discover our mortality and our limitations is not a la-di-da, it's a, it's a painful truth. But I also think we bear witness to a God who in the life of the eternal, there is nothing lost of human love, um, that it's conserved, um, <laughs> preserved, or to put it more traditionally, it's raised. <laughs> that's so hard Mm -hmm. the most we can do is to write a few lines of hopeful poetry i was Um, gonna say you write some (laughs) exactly 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 the right response is you write some very good or very bad poetry it's gonna feel the same Well, I, I, I think that's why we break into song. Uh, that's why the apostolic constitution, an ancient liturgical document, says, in the death of the saints, accompany them with singing, not with explanations, but with, but with singing. Thanksgiving, praise, lament. Yeah. But you and I are academics, and we're hoping it says accompany them with a really strong uh, footnote apparatus. Accompany them with a series of really detailed lectures. (laughs) Right. You're right up close to people as they attempt to articulate these long-form, terrible truths. I mean, especially even now, we're coming off of a few years of consecutive years of loss in which people are calibrating and recalibrating. And I think one of the, if not for death, they're, they're, they're feeling a sense of impending uh, and constant undoing and redoing. 
I just wondered how we can say loving but honest things about grief right now. Yeah. A part of the challenge there is that grief is so unpredictable, unlike it doesn't come in stages, <laughs> as some people have tried to argue. It sometimes feels like numbness, it, nothingness. It sometimes feels like a thunderstorm of rage and pain. Uh, it comes and goes. It grabs us in unexpected moments. And the pastoral task in response to the grieving starts with a silence, I think. Uh, we, we just wait it out and let it pour. And then I don't think we ought to neglect at some point, and sensing when the time is right is hard, but there is a right time um, to say uh, we are not abandoned by the love of God, even in the depth of our brokenness. Where, where could we go from uh, God's Spirit? We, we can't go to hell and get away from it. We can't go to the top of the mountain and get away from it. God is always there, providing, loving, sustaining, judging, ho- holding us together, pulling us apart when we need to be pulled apart. Mm. For the last 50 years, we've seen the decline of the spiritual authority of people like pastors and priests mm-hmm. to have as, as trusted people to tell the truth. And that's for a lot of reasons. And for the most part, we earned that decline. So <laughs> congratulations us. But there's a replacement, I think, right now with a certain kind of way of talking about therapists and therapy, which I cherish, mm-hmm. therapy, etc. Mm-hmm. mental health, hooray. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if there's a way that we talk about the therapeutic right now that assumes that it will do not just all the work of mental health, but replace all the work of this now declined figure of the pastor and priest, and what is perhaps lost in that. Mm-hmm. I think you've put your finger uh, right right on it. In fact, one of the things that convicted me about my own funeral research was to discover in the 19th century, we stopped believing the story that we were telling about life and death. The gospel became, at least the ways we were telling it, became implausible. And part of it was our own fault. I mean, we, we kept trotting out unrealistic language about streets of gold and angels floating on clouds at, at funerals. And, and people began to be educated and not believe that anymore. And so they began to believe Elizabeth wasn't going anywhere. She was just <laughs> dead, uh, she, except she would go into our memory banks. We'll always remember Elizabeth, we would lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, you walk around any country cemetery, you'll find people who are forgotten by everybody except God and the yeah. saints. And so we, the services began to shift away from Elizabeth and her journey to Tom and his interior journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth is not going anywhere, but Tom is moving psychically from <laughs> sorrow to stability. And so the funerals became grief management. Uh, and I'm not against grief management, but 
that's a serious downsizing of the great gospel drama that was being told. Funerals moved from proclamation to pastoral care. And in doing so, began to absorb the language of the therapeutic that is the lingua franca of uh, a certain period in pastoral care uh, anyway. And yeah, God comforts us in our sorrow. The blessed are those who mourn. Uh, All those things are are true. But this is not simply about uh, getting over my grief. Uh, this, this, in fact, the only way really to address grief in a full sense is to keep telling the, the narrative that sustains us, that has broken apart because of the death. Yes. And if you were going to tell it for me, you'd say? I, I, would, I would say we, we used to tell a story where Elizabeth played this particular role. And now we can no longer tell it that way because Elizabeth has been uh, transformed, and so have we. And so the story we now tell is uh, Elizabeth among the clouds of witnesses and saints, Elizabeth whose life is now a matter of gratitude for us and thanksgiving. Uh, The pain that we feel is because we are trying to repair that narrative, and we don't have to do the repairing. It has been repaired for us. I like that you just sat back. You're like, yep, that's... <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that, that's, that's a, frail, a frail attempt to say it, but... No, uh, no, it's not. It's not at all. I hate, Sometimes when we say, um, you know... Well, there just are no words. We're like, no, there are, <laughs> there are some actually. <laughs> I, I appreciate this. A lot, a lot of pastors uh, say, well, I, I have a ministry of presence. And yeah, that, yeah it, we do. We have a ministry of presence, but you also have a mouth, and we also have a tradition, and we have centuries of trying to think these things through, and we have walked through this forest thousands of times. There are those occasions when even in a secular society, the community gathers for a funeral, Christian funeral, and a Christian pastor or a rabbi or somebody with faith gets to, to preside, and it's so stunningly powerful when they tell the truth that it, by contrast, the thinning out of things it's it's life-giving. Yes. That is a weird feeling, though. I can tell we both like it and know it, <laughs> but the that feeling of right up at the edge, and you curl your toes over the edge, and you feel the upward draft of mm. a hard of a hard thing, mm-hmm. and I, we don't want to just say mystery. It like requires some kind of response. It has been such a joy to listen to your beautiful brain think through these really hard, really hard truths with me today, Tom. Thank you so much for doing this. Joy to talk to you. We lose big and small all the time. So many of us are trying to recalibrate after consecutive years of loss. Who are we in the aftermath of so much change? 
after so much that we've lost. And it's sort of an enormous game of theological chicken to face down impossible things. Impossible things like the mystery of death and speak honestly about God and our lives while teetering between hope and despair. Bless you all as you live still in the wake of all that you've lost, all there is still to lose, standing in the balance between your loves and your fears, holding on to hope, clinging to truths that are big enough to carry it all. Bless you, lovelies. This episode of the Everything Happens podcast was made possible because of our generous partners, Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education. And of course, nothing is possible without the wisdom and expertise of my absolutely fabulous team. Jessica Ritchie, my heart I love you, Harriet Putman, Keith Weston, Gwen Higginbotham, Brenda Thompson, Hope Anderson, Jeb Burt, and Catherine Smith. This really is my very favorite kind of group project. So if you want to know what else we're up to, head over to katebowler.com newsletter so you don't miss a thing. I would really love to hear what you thought about this episode. Would you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? It means a ton to us when we hear what you liked or who you want to hear in conversation next. Also, we really love hearing your voice. Feel free to leave us a voicemail. We might even use it on the air. So call us at 919-322-8731. All right, lovelies, I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.